Good morning. Our scripture today is Philemon 1 through 25. Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker in Aphia, our sister, and our Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you, my child, Anisimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he was indeed use, useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by the compulsion, might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, to say nothing of your owing me of your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confidence of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristocras, Dimas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? Father, I do ask that as we look to this letter again this week, you might open our eyes and open our hearts, that we might see, hear, believe, and be changed. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So as I started off last week, I'll start again this week. You can't have Romans without Philemon. That's what my pastor and mentor said to me when I was 23 years old in a program. That was the first time I'd ever taken note of this short little letter you can't have Romans, this great theological treatise, this understanding of, of what Christ did on the cross and who we are and what happened in all the cosmos, 
right? The cosmos is groaning for Christ to return in Romans. But we can't have all this grandiose theology if we don't have examples of it actually being practiced and hitting our real temporal lives. And that's what we have in this letter, this little snapshot of a citizen, a community leader, a house church host, a new Christian in this new community, this new way, this new religion that was sweeping across the empire. We have the setting of Roman slavery, where anywhere from 80 to 90% of the population was involved somehow and connected to the slave class. And Onesimus was one of his servants, one of his slaves, and he was gone. We don't know exactly why we conjecture all these different ways. And so, again, on these areas of the scripture where we do not have a clear and distinct, succinct answer, let's not try to fill in the blanks too hard, is my always just good rule of thumb. But what we do know <coughs> is that Onesimus went and found Paul where he was imprisoned, probably Rome. And when he found him there, he somehow went from being a runaway who had a debt and trouble back in Colossae. He became, uh, instead of a runaway from Colossae, he became a helpful and useful son and brother in the faith to Paul while he was imprisoned. That's the transformation that we know. And that's why Paul says, I, I'm sending him to you, he who is my heart. To be honest, I've only seen in the scriptures one other person that Paul speaks more affectionately towards. It was young Timothy. So you can tell how, what a sweet spot Onesimus has, must have carved out. But here we have the issue of what to do in the church with a runaway in the culture of the empire. Someone who has broken some laws, broken some codes, broken some morality probably. But now is found life and new life in Christ. What are we now to do? The mission of this letter is to get Philemon to forgive Onesimus and to embrace him as a brother. That is the sole purpose of this letter. To get Onesimus to, to be forgiven and to be received in as a new believer, as a brother in Christ. Last week, we focused on the idea of partnership, of the koinonia idea that Paul wrote. He says, you've had partnership with me in the gospel, and now I'm imploring you to have partnership with me again in the gospel in this instance. This partnership, this sharing, this mutual participation in what God is doing through Jesus and his kingdom, through the proclamation of the good news of Jesus, through the filling and indwelling of his spirit, through the formation of his kingdom communities that we now just casually call the church. We were reminded last week that koinonia, this partnership, is not merely an idea that's nice or something to name your small group program after. No, koinonia is something that you must do. It must be realized and manifested. It must be enacted. So Paul asks Philemon to embrace Onesimus in koinonia and to receive him back as a brother, as a family member, as an equal. But here comes the question. How can Philemon receive Onesimus as a brother with the outstanding debts that are owed to him morally, Socially, 
culturally, legally? What has to happen for this to come to fruition? You see, Paul knew it, and though he didn't want to do it necessarily, or at least he alludes to the idea that he would rather keep Onesimus with him, helping him, serving together with him in the bonds that he is in, but also for the bonds of Christ. He wants to keep him, but he knows he cannot keep him. He knows that Onesimus must go back. You see, the main character, Onesimus, has some issues. He's a runaway. He can't get caught. If he gets caught away, there's some serious problems. And if he returns and gets caught in the back, back home, it might be even more serious. Either way, the life of a runaway is always looking over your shoulder. Isn't it good news that we can joke in the past tense about runaway? It is good news. Something that was all too familiar to us over the past couple of weeks. Something that we maybe never thought of in anything else other than the movies. What was it like to be a runaway? Is it a good life? Is it a luxurious life? Is it a life with rest and peace? Or is it a constant scramble of looking over your shoulder and wondering, is this someone following me? Has someone caught up with me? Has someone sussed out my trail? A lifetime of not building roots or not leaving records, not staying in one place too long. Paul knows that Onesimus, though he has found Christ and is made new creation in Christ, he's from the old and now into the new. He's part of the new humanity that Paul wrote about in Ephesians chapter 2. That despite all that truth about Onesimus in Christ, Onesimus is still living in the empire. He's still living in light of what he did and did not do. That's one of the lessons we're going to look at. That's the lesson we're going to look at today. What do we do even though we are free in Christ? What do we do with what we've done? How do we handle that? I know one of the most freeing words that I've received, one of my favorite books is called Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I remember reading the part about confession to one another. I remember reading the beauty of what I needed to hear when I was young and I needed to hear that God truly could forgive, that God truly could love, that God truly could restore. And in this section on the book, um, uh, Dietrich wrote that we get the opportunity to be the hands and feet and presence of Jesus to one another when we confess our sins to one another. Because it's so easy to just have this ethereal, ethereal um, relationship to God in the heavens where we just bow our heads and say, Lord, forgive me for X, Y, and Z. But if you have ever taken the time to confess your sins to another living, embodied human, eye to eye, face to face, you may have experienced how challenging, how nerve-wracking confession can be when you're airing your shame and your innermost fears to a person. And then, so Dietrich says that that person who then hears that confession gets the right and the privilege of being Jesus in that moment to say, you are forgiven. You are clean. 
go forth from this moment not carrying the shame of the past. Go forth knowing that in Christ, from this point forward, you are free and clean from your sin. What a powerful opportunity. What a powerful existence. But that does not absolve the temporal effects of our prior sins, does it? Time and time again, when I become less than super dad of the month, there's moments where I have to reapproach my kids and say, I overreacted. You did not deserve my words. Will you forgive me? And honestly, sometimes I have to try to slow my kids down for forgiving me. Like, no, 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 like actually process this. My youngest, who's no longer in here, so she won't like get mad at me and roll her eyes at me. She's so quick to, Dad, it's all right. I'm like, no, it's not. You see, because I know that if I continue in a pattern like this, there will be the marks of anger from whom they should have love, right? And that has consequences. So how do we resolve? How do we go back? We all have our moments and our issues and our things where we need to go back and deal with our past. So let's take a look at what happens here in this letter. Onesimus must return to Philemon and attempt to reconcile. Notice I said attempt. Is it Onesimus's place to mandate reconciliation? Can he demand that he be reconciled? Can he be, demand that he be forgiven? No, that's the frailty, that's the vulnerability of this whole process, is that when we go to seek to be forgiven and then reconciled, we are opening ourselves up and losing what? The most deeply thing that we seem to cherish in our culture. We are giving up control. We are giving up control of ourselves, our reception, and our future. So, he, what, if he's going to be sent to go and reconcile with Philemon, we must first ask, what is reconciliation? And a sub-question is going to be, uh, are, is reconciliation the same as forgiveness? Or are they separate entities and stages of a different process, of the same process? So I'm going to throw out a definition. There's many that you could lean to, but the one I'm leaning on right now is that reconciliation is the restoration of a relationship to a harmonious state. It's a restoration of a relationship to a harmonious state after a dispute. It's the bringing of a cord out of discord between two parties. That seems nice in technical language, right? You, that's how you walk up to a friend to get, rec, to get reconciled with. I would like to bring to accord the discord between us, friend. It's exactly how you speak, right? But that is the goal, is to mend and to reconnect this relationship. While forgiveness, forgiveness is the act of pardoning an offender. In the Bible, the Greek word translated forgiveness literally means to let go as when a person does not demand a payment for a debt. You see, we can see the difference. Reconciliation is, is requested by the offender. Forgiveness is offered by the offended. Forgiveness is unique because it does not require uh, an apology. 
to perform. Jesus taught us to forgive, that we may enjoy and receive God's forgiveness more freely. I, I looked at one article and they gave like eight steps or seven steps for, to, uh, to forgive. And I thought that's kind of good. One, I tend not to be very practical. Again, you can ask my wife, she'll agree. But I just thought I'd throw out just some ideas of what it looks like to forgive. One, start, with, start by acknowledging the pain. Very often we just think that forgiveness is just like, oh, let it be, let it be, forget about it, don't do it, don't mention it. Nope. Part of forgiveness is actually looking it in the face and saying, I acknowledge what happened. Acknowledging the pain. Take time and actually think through the events. Make sure you understand what did occur as clearly and truthfully as possible. And then as we start entering down towards this path towards forgiving someone, we enter into where we see the pain, acknowledge what's happened, um, but we want to imagine what it's like on the other side of this moment, on the other side of this hurt or this debt. And at that time, it's probably good to look back and remember how God has been gracious to us. To, to think through, how did God forgive us? To what lengths did God go to forgive? Maybe even go through a, a short list of what has God forgiven in us and on our behalf. That might help us to get to this next step and stage of letting go of the hurt. Letting go. Forgiveness means to let go. Make sure you repeat as needed. You might need to continue to forgive time and time again. You may have forgiven somebody and then may have to forgive them again and again and again. I've heard that, you know, I remember early on in my life before I was married, I got good marriage advice. Um, don't get hysterical or historical. And now 20 years into marriage, I've learned how easy it is to go, yeah, but do you remember when? Or, yeah, you always. Probably not a good healthy relationship tactic to bring up the past that may or may not be involved. But the reality is some of these hurts are going to hurt again, and we may have to forgive again. And then the last piece of advice for the process of forgiveness is to pray for the person. And I don't mean pray for the, you can, you can pray for justice. And you can be honest and pray what you're feeling. And if what you're feeling right now is, Lord, please give them fleas. It's petty, but I get it. Um, but also learn to pray for your enemy. Pray for those who've hurt you. Pray for their good and their blessing. I do remember a time when I was in prayer with one of my, one of my colleagues out in Ohio. And we had issues with our, you know, we had frustrations and scraps with our siblings and so forth. And I think he nobly, I'm not going to take the credit for it, he said, you know, we should pray for them. I'm like, oh, that's great. So once a week, we'd get together and we'd pray for a lot of things and we'd pray for our siblings. Really funny. It's like our relationships were getting better because of the prayer. Later on, I, I, I had a, a, a person who's such a part of our life now that this family is like a surrogate set of grandparents for my kids. But I'll be honest, when I started as a 23-year-old youth director at the church, I was not on their list of people they wanted at the church. And it was pretty clear that they did not want us there for a while. A few years later, Jerry not only had us in our home every week for dinner, but she also became one of the youth leaders in my youth group. She was the best. 
And I said, Jerry, do you remember when you wanted me out of here? She's like, oh yes, I remember. What changed? Jerry Sloan looked me in the eye and just said, I started praying for you. I have a hunch that God changed her heart. I have another hunch, Bob. God changed me because of her prayers. That brash, obnoxious 23-year-old probably became a little bit more refined, a little more palatable, and we got to know each other, and there was trust and love. So friends, as we go through a process to forgive, maybe that's what you need to hear today, is how to forgive someone, acknowledging the pain, thinking through the events, but imagining what's like on the other side and remembering God's forgiveness for us. Then we can try to let go, even repeatedly, and praying for their blessing and their good. That's great, and that's part of the forgiveness for the person to offer who has been wounded. But Onesimus was the wounder. Onesimus is the debtor. Onesimus is the runaway. It's interesting. So forgiveness does not necessarily come easily, nor is it switch event, as we discussed, but also when we get to the point where we forgive, it releases us. See, forgiveness is for the offended to be released from carrying the weight of the offense that was put upon us. When we can forgive somebody, even if they never repent, even if they never make amends, even if they never repay, we are set free from carrying the burden that someone imposed upon us. We don't have to carry that pain and that bitterness that, that actually poisons the soul. But you can see forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. Forgiveness does not mean that you are in a good new relationship with that person. Forgiveness is letting go and release, but reconciliation is the repairing and mending and reconnecting. And let me be candid. There are offenses that need to be forgiven but should not be reconciled. There are offenses that people do to one another that you should never have to be in the same room with them again. And that is not a sign of unforgiveness. That is not a sign of unchristian charity. There have been examples in the past where such grievous, grievous sins have been done to people. And then leaders of the church said, okay, forgive each other and now sit in the same pew. That may not be appropriate. Or may, it may take time, or may take a long, and we don't need to get into the what and the whys. I think you know that there's a host of reasons that reconciliation may not be possible, but forgiveness is mandatory. Real quick, what are some examples? If Jesus says we have to forgive, and the model of our relationship to Christ is recon being reconciled to God, what did that look like? If you never notice in the Old Testament that if you did something wrong to somebody, there was, a, there was a, a law dictating the price or the act or that which was needed to be done. In fact, we have a New Testament example of that when Jesus walked into a town and there was a great crowd and a wee little tax collector, a short little guy, climbed up in a tree. And I hope I put a song in your head now. Zacchaeus, he was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. And he climbed up in that sycamore tree. And when Jesus said, come down, I'm going to your house today. I'm going to your house today. What happened? Zacchaeus comes down with great joy and, and just bouncing off the walls. And he says, 
today, if I have stolen from anybody, because he was a tax collector, and they were known for overtaxing, some things don't you know, change. Cheap shot, I know. But if he stole, he was going to pay it back. But what else did he say? If he stole, he's paying it back, and he's going to pay back four times the amount. Was that a random nice gesture? No, it was in obedience to the Old Testament law of if you've stolen from somebody, you pay back four times the amount. That is the restoration. That is the cost of reparations for the harm done to you. You see, restoration, reparations, reconciliation is all biblically rooted in the Old Testament. It absolutely is there that if you've done harm to someone, you owe them a debt to pay back. And does it change the past? No. But it does make amends, and the process changes the individual. And so what did Jesus say to Zacchaeus in that moment? Salvation has come to this house when? Today. He sees me. He believes me. He acknowledges his sin, and he makes restitution. It's very good. It's very beautiful. So what's at stake for Onesimus in this moment? It's clear with us when we look at Onesimus and his need for reconciliation Saving faith is not merely believing facts about Jesus. Our saving faith is not merely assenting to the resurrection. It's not merely belief in the supernatural in a closed natural worldview that we live in today. It's not merely believing that a living, communicative, personal God is possible and real. Salvation has has to be lived. Saving faith is trusting your own life into King Jesus' hands. Let me say that again. Saving faith is trusting your own life into King Jesus' hands for eternity and for today. So back in Colossae, what was facing Onesimus? Jail, beatings, humiliation, penance, even possibly death. And Paul's sending him back. Paul is sending him home. He has to put his life into Jesus' hands, and he has to go back. What's that cost for the Christian community back in Colossae, in Philemon's house church? The question is, does the gospel of Jesus Christ, does the good news of Jesus impact real life? Or is it more of just a distant and eternal hope? Is it what they call spiritual fire insurance or a get-out-of-hell-free card? Or is it about a transformed today? Does becoming a Christian actually change you? Does it actually change your status in society? Does it actually change your status inside this community, the Christian community? We're reminded at this time to ask what's in store for him. We might ask when Jesus was asked, how many times must we forgive? Is there a limit to what Onesimus can ask to be forgiven? Does, does, the, does the issue of class change the nature of the Christian community's forgiveness? Does the issue of empire's laws change the Christian community's need to reconcile? These are the questions that are facing this group of people that are gathered 
and worshiping Lord risen Jesus. They have to ask if the revealed word of God is for real or merely platitudes. Today, we have to ask those same questions. We have to ask, is, is the church merely our cultural identity? Is faith in Jesus just something to affect our eternity or help us to be a moral, good person today? Does God have the right to claim that we act outside the norms of our culture? That we practice, practice forgiveness and reconciliation in a way that might seem radical to the world around us? How do we process that? How do we know which is the kind of uh, issue that we can reconcile and which are the ones that we shouldn't? These are the questions for us. And we're brought back again to the partnership, to the koinonia. If koinonia is the goal, if partnership, shared partnership with Jesus is the goal of our Christian community, then we must have a trusting and forgiven and when appropriate reconciled relationships. We cannot bear being angry or mad at our sisters or brothers in this community such that we can't talk to them, can't share with them, can't have fellowship with them. And there are so, no instances that come to my mind directly, but I think if you've been in the church long enough to know that there are occasions where brothers and sisters in Christ don't talk to each other, won't sit at the same table with each other, won't forgive each other. By the way, when we start going towards, as we go to this table later on, I believe in Corinthians 11, that is the sin that is being talked about, is when you have differences that are unresolved amongst, between the people, and an unwillingness to resolve our differences and our pains and our sufferings and our hurts. I don't think it's the non-believer who accidentally comes up and takes a piece of bread and drinks from a cup. I don't think that's the sin that is talked about in Corinthians. It's when the body that's to be a living organism, a living family, doesn't act like a family. When the body doesn't choose to participate in the same forgiveness and reconciliation that they were given towards their neighbor. It reminds me of the guy who who begged for forgiveness because he owed millions to the king. He owed millions to the king. And then he goes back out to the bar to celebrate. And he sees the guy that owes him 20 and, and calls the cops on him and says, this guy owes me 20. You can see the hypocrisy. And I think that's what God wants to call us out for on our inability to forgive one another. It doesn't mean that you've resolved and everything is just glorious and happy. That person who's offended you, that doesn't mean open yourself up to be offended again. That person who's taken from you, it doesn't mean open yourself up to be stolen from again. But what it does mean is together we wrestle through what does a gospel kingdom family look like that partnership demands that we must have trusting forgiven and when appropriate reconciled relationships our ways must be like jesus we must participate in the law of love the law of love requires us to forgive and to reconcile as god's reconciled us so god might be asking you in light of today whether it's today, tomorrow, in the next month or two, there might be a time where God, through his Holy Spirit, might put on your conscience, go back. 
That's the question for you to ask from this time. To pray and sincerely give space and quiet for God to, to maybe open up your eyes to know, do you need to go back? Do you need to go back to somebody to reconcile, to apologize, and put your relationship in their hands? To put your dignity in their hands, to put the outcome of your situation, not in the control of yours, but open yourself up to the love of others and trusting that the Holy Spirit can work in his people. Do you need to go back? If so, what will you do? You know there's a cost to this, right? There's confession. And I don't mean the confession in the quiet of your prayer closet. I mean the confession eye to eye, voice to voice, face to face. Zoom to Zoom, I guess, probably never thought we'd say that. But if you have to go back, there's going to be that pain. There's going to be reliving the memory of that which is the offense. And then you have to tr ask yourself, do I actually trust Jesus? Not just for my eternity, but for my today. Do I actually trust Jesus to be able to repair this relationship? Do I actually trust Jesus to carry me through being rejected again. I hope that we all are a people who will go back and ask for forgiveness, that we will go back and open up ourselves to reconciliation as needed. And let me be honest, if you go through this process and you think of a couple people that you need to go do this with, maybe it's even from 5, 10, 20 years ago, if you go through this process, you will grow in your trust and faith in Christ. But also something else will happen. If we do this among us, we will not just have a Presbyterian social club. But the more we do this, we will have a family that embodies Christ, that is filled by the Spirit, that is led by Christ, and if you, it's easy to trust God for our eternity for some reason, but hard to trust him for our day-to-day. -day. But if we put ourselves in the position where we trust God day-to-day, -day, you will see God at work among you. And if we don't, we put up barriers to what God is able to do among us. I fear this sermon, by the way, because I, too, have to go and pray, Lord, do I need to go back? Is that what you're calling me to do, or is that just a weird twist of conscience? Is that what's needed here? Do I have the courage to do it? Do I believe in his spirit? Do I believe in the church? So what is the cost to our Christian community of this? Well, it answers the question. Do we really believe that the gospel impacts real life? Do we really believe that following Jesus can and needs to be manifested today and tomorrow. It really asks and begs the question of, can Christ actually change you and change a whole community of people? Can God change the status within the church community? It really begs the question of how many times can we be forgiven? Because I'll be honest, I'm kind of a repeat offender. Yeah, I can tell you that, you know why? Because I'm sure you are too. 
but will we go through the process time and time again as it's needed? So we get to answer the question as we pray and ask, are we going to be Onesimus? Are we going to be honest about what has been done? And are we going to go back so that we can go forward? In so doing, we get to ask, is this real? Lord, I pray that you would be with us as we seek 